0: Welcome back to Sleeping Through Class. This is a podcast covering American history and world history. Um, today we are going to be taking a look at American history and the United States after the American Revolution. We're going to look at the um, new government of the United States. We're going to take a look at the Articles of Confederation and the move towards the Constitution that we know today. My name is Nick Riskevich, and I'm here today with Brendan Horojo and Kevin Beato. Alright, so first things first, let's, um, let's get some vocabulary straight here because we hear a lot of terms when we talk about government and different types of government. So first off, um, would one of you guys be able to explain to me what is the difference between a monarchy, a republic... And democracy. What are those different terms? What does that mean?
1: Uh, yeah, I can I can explain it for you. Um, so a monarchy was the system of government that we used to have back in uh, colonial times, right? It's when you have a king or a queen uh, who's in charge, and they basically are like the unquestioned ruler. Um, so they're in charge. Uh, in, in our case, it was King George the uh, Third during the American Revolution, and he controlled everywhere in the English Empire. And so it creates some problems because, uh, you know, just because your father was amazing and was able to take over the throne and rule the kingdom doesn't mean that you are, right? And uh, some of those ideas were discussed by uh, Thomas Paine in Common Sense. A republic is where you have elected representatives. So this is really what we have more in the United States. We uh, don't want to go to Washington and vote on every single thing, so we elect people to go as our senators or as our congresspeople, and they go and they vote on different things on our behalf. Uh, And the third one is democracy. So democracy is a majority rule. So a simple democracy it's kind of like what they had in ancient Greece. You are voting, and it's a simple up-down vote. Um, so like if you have a room full of 30 people, and you're trying to decide what to order for dinner, uh, you do a simple vote, uh, and if 16 hands go up, you have a simple majority, and that's enough to, uh, to decide something. So those are the three basic um, types of governments that we're looking at here.
0: Awesome. That's great information. So that gets us started here. Um, so let's get into government in the um, United States, or at least the American colonies. When they declared independence in 1776, um, why did they need a government? and what, what sort of happened there? Kevin, can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, so they're declaring independence from Great Britain, and after doing so, they, they're looking at what comes next. So, okay, we're going to be our own country, well, we need to figure out... You know, how are we going to have laws? What, what kind of government are we going to have to overlook all these colonies that are going to end up becoming states? There's a lot of debate that takes place right around the time of the Declaration. And the main thing that they come to is what's going to be called the Articles of Confederation. Uh, pretty quickly, most states sign on to it. But there are some states that hold out. Uh, some of the issues was all this new land that they're getting as part of this revolution off like to the west of the Appalachian Mountains some existing states are making claims to that western land like tiny little Connecticut is gonna essentially like quadruple its size in the west even though it's not even connected to it but they've laid claim to it Maryland is the main state that holds out they felt like they had no claims to the west and they were getting a raw deal Uh, Thomas Jefferson is actually going to be the one that helps to persuade Virginia and other states to get rid of their claims to get states like Maryland on board. And that also helps to set up the creation of new states once we become independent. So states like Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, these states happen because Thomas Jefferson helps persuade the bigger states from getting rid of their claims to that western land.
0: So the Articles of Confederation, we're talking about this new... Um, government governing document what we call a constitution um what was this new constitution like exactly was it powerful or was it weak and and why was it created the way it was brendan
1: so the articles of confederation are a sort of like loose relationship between uh, these different states. The, the states are kind of like independent countries. Now, they don't want a strong central government. They just had that with you know uh, King George III. And so they're looking for some way to sort of be connected with each other, but also be sort of decentralized. And it ends up creating tons of problems. Uh, you have all kinds of issues where money doesn't work from one state to another. What happens when you're shipping goods across state lines? Uh, it, it just... It's very, very problematic, and who settles disputes in between the states? It was this really rough sort of way of figuring out um, how these states were going to relate to each other. What eventually happens is they plan on having a legislature, like a a lawmaking body, Um, and every state has equal representation. The problem with that, though, is some states that have lots of people had the same power as states that had, you know, a very small amount of people. And then you needed a 913th majority in order to pass anything. Amendments needed to be unanimous. So it's really, really difficult. You couldn't even get, you know, 13 people to agree on what to order for breakfast. You know, like, it's very difficult. Um, Or maybe... You couldn't couldn't get 13 people to agree on what to order for lunch. So, assuming they weren't sleeping together. Um, There were also issues when it came to declaring war. You know, uh, if... If Massachusetts goes to war with England, do the other states have to go back up Massachusetts? Uh, Would there be peace treaties that could be signed by individual states, or would they work together? Um, Alliances, ambassadors, uh, taxes, These these things were all huge, huge problems because the rules were just not drawn out. So if each state acts as their own country, they could settle these things by themselves but it really makes it problematic for working things out. And and, and we start to see this um, as we go into the late 1780s. There were just a lot of problems with the Articles of Confederation, and, and the United States or the, uh, the Confederation was having a lot of problems trying to figure it
0: out. Yeah, exactly. There were definitely a lot of problems. Like you said, one of the big ones was um, the fact that the federal government didn't have the power to... Um, basically raise taxes and because they couldn't collect any tax money they couldn't do things like properly fund an army um and we see that kind of come up a couple times and, and that that problem kind of highlighted a couple times kevin what were some some points where the fact that the federal government could not provide um a military where, where did that kind of show up where did we see that
2: so yeah the big thing, it's a big vocab term, is Shays' Rebellion. So you have states that are, and the federal government itself, there's a lot of debt. You fight a war, it costs a lot of money, and now the United States are in debt. Uh, Massachusetts bears a heavy burden of debt, and they impose heavy taxes, heavier than pretty much any of the other states, to try and pay off that debt. Problem is, with Massachusetts, it's sort of split into two. So you have the eastern half where Boston is, it's viewed as sort of the elite part, and then there's the rural Massachusetts off in the west. So naturally they're going to sort of see themselves as being against each other. Uh, During this time, farmers are incurring a lot of the burden of that debt, and they're getting foreclosed on. So you know they're not able to pay off the debts, and thus the banks come in, and the courts come in, and they take away your farm. Obviously, they have an issue with that. So that fuels this feud between Western Massachusetts and the elite eastern part, or Boston. Uh, the farmers had this idea saying that, well, if we go to these debtor courts who are being pro creditor, so they're siding with the people who need the money, not the people who are having to pay it off, they're siding with them. So if we go and we shut these courts down, problem solved. We can't be foreclosed on. Uh the person who's thrust into this role of leading this rebellion is Daniel Shays. So he didn't really seek out the role, but he was pushed into the forefront of it. He's an American Revolution veteran. Uh, So now you have these armed farmers taking over these courts. And the lack of a centralized military force means that Massachusetts has to deal with it on its own. And there's a lot of debate in Massachusetts at the time and throughout the country on how Oh, this is terrible. Like what's going on? They got to get their stuff together. And then there's other people, even prominent figures who are cheering on the rebellion. So the way that it has to get dealt with because there is no centralized military force is that wealthy Bostonians have to actually fund a private military force to go in and then take down the farmers. So that really highlights how weak the federal government is that a bunch of farmers can get their guns together, go to court, and the government is helpless to deal with them.
0: Yeah, exactly. The government um, was called upon but had no way to respond. They had no military. There was nothing they could do because they didn't have the taxes to raise that military and didn't have the power to do it. Um, There were other issues as well. There were issues like the um, British soldiers staying on American territory after the revolution had ended, refusing to leave, staying on American or on forts on American territory. Um, You had Spain closing down the port of New Orleans. And that basically um, prevented people from using the Mississippi River, which was kind of a like, you may want to consider it like a highway of today um, as far as transporting goods. Um, that was not able to be used by farmers living close to the Mississippi River to ship their, their crops to bigger cities on the coast. And that was a problem. And in both of those cases, again, the federal government had no way to deal with these problems. So those, along with Shays' Rebellion, um, highlighted the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation. Um, so what comes of that? When they realize that the Articles are too weak, what, what do we see come from that?
1: So what they do is they realize that there needs to be something stronger. They need to go ahead and basically reshape Uh, The Articles and so in 1787 they realize they have to beef it up. They have to do something and so uh, This huge group of representatives from uh, all the different states they show up and they start looking uh, Closely at the Articles of Confederation and they want to change things here and they want to change things there And they were really afraid of, of having a strong central government because they had just gotten away from a king so they're, they're hesitant, but they eventually do realize that they need some sort of structure, some sort of central government that would help mediate disputes between the states. Uh, the way that I like to explain it to my children, uh, or my, my students, rather, is that there's like 13 little kids bickering with each other, and you need one strong parent in the room to help settle disputes and keep them from killing each other, right? So... They come up with uh, a couple of different plans. They say, okay, uh, we have this Virginia plan and we have this New Jersey plan. Uh, The Virginia plan basically says we're going to create a legislative body based on population. So states like Virginia or North Carolina, Pennsylvania, uh, where there's lots of people, they're going to have more political power uh, and more say in what happens than states like New Jersey or Rhode Island or um, these less populated states. The New Jersey plan... Uh, basically said, hey, let's have a system similar to what we were doing, where it's based on representation. Everybody gets one vote. That seems fair. The question is, how do you settle these two disputes? Is it based on how many people are in your state or the fact that you just have statehood? So they eventually have to work out a compromise.
0: All right. Yeah, they, they do, um, because you have this issue of are we all going to have an equal say or are states with bigger population going to have more say? So, So, Kevin, what was this compromise that they eventually come to? What did they eventually decide?
2: Yeah, this compromise, this great compromise, if you will, or the Connecticut compromise, it sort of takes the ideas of both the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan and creates one legislative body out of it. So you're going to get what's called a bicameral legislature, or two houses of legislature. So you have the Senate, which is the upper house. That's going to be the representation of the New Jersey plan. Each state is going to get two senators. They're going to serve six-year terms, and one-third of all senators will be up for election every two years. The other house, the lower house, is the House of Representatives, and that's... In relation to your population and they're elected every other year so every two years every single member of the house of representatives is up for re-election the house is more prone to reflecting the will of the people and the senate is stagnant so you can see a lot of change in the house and they're more likely to pass legislation than the senate is the state actually would appoint their own senators to Congress until the 17th Amendment in 1913. So your state legislature would actually pick the two representatives to go to D.C. and represent the state. But even with this, when you're looking at the House of Representatives, it's hard to say, like, who constitutes a person because you have this issue of slavery as well. So do slaves count at all? Do they... Do they count entirely? And what they decided was that it's called the three-fifths compromise. So three-fifths of non-white people, or otherwise known as slaves mostly at the time, they would count towards the population. So if you have five slaves, three of them count towards your representation in Congress.
1: Yeah, and part of the reason why they had to do that compromise was because if they did not count slaves as something, the southern states would have a lot less representation based on population than they actually kind of deserve. Um, so it would re- give a real advantage to the North in,
0: uh, you know, the legislation. Exactly. Um, so with this, like, bicameral legislature that we're talking about, real quick, how does it work if they want to pass a law? is it oh, Does it become a law if the Senate passes something but the House doesn't or vice versa? Or do they both have to approve it?
1: So um, if you've ever seen Schoolhouse Rock, uh, there's a very famous video, uh, you know, I'm just a bill. And and basically, um, inside the Senate and inside the House, there are these subcommittees uh, where they can uh, bring up bills. And if it passes through the subcommittee, um, you know, like this subcommittee on agriculture, if they want to change something about the way farming works, it it has to be voted through with the subcommittee. And then it's brought to the the House or uh, the Senate based on where it starts. And it has to be approved by one and then go to the other and be approved. If any changes are made, if they uh, add on any riders to it, which are like little add-ons to bills um, where you basically staple something onto it, if anything like that happens, what it means is that it has to go back to the other house. They have to approve the exact same legislation before it goes to the executive branch and the president will sign it into law. If it's not the exact same, it can't work.
0: Yeah, that's, that's exactly how it works. Um, so let's get on to, because we're getting into this topic now, checks and balances. Um, so obviously you've mentioned now a couple times that we have different branches of government. We talked about the legislative branch, which is the House and the Senate. Um, we have the executive branch, uh, which sort of enforces the laws. We have the judicial branch. So tell me about these. What, what do they do? Um, and, and what is their role in all of this stuff?
2: Yeah, so with the, this new constitution that they're creating, they look at how weak the Articles of Confederation are, and compared to our current three branches of government on the federal level, the Articles essentially only had one, a legislature. They did not have a judicial branch to settle disputes, and they did not have an executive. So nowadays the executive is chiefed by the president, the legislative body is Congress, so the Senate and the House, And then the judicial branch is headed by the supreme court of the united states and all these different branches each have their own pieces of power that work together and they can also help to offset each other so for instance the legislature can pass laws so as brendan was talking about goes through both the senate and the house they pass it but then the president has to actually sign it so the president has that check on the legislature He can sign it into law, if he agrees with it, or he can veto that law. In other words, strike it down, say, nope, it's not going to pass. At that point, it can actually go back to Congress, who, with two-thirds majority in both houses, can override that. Uh, The Supreme Court can also declare a law unconstitutional if it goes through the proper channels. Uh, another, Another sort of check and balance would be justices on the Supreme Court. They serve life sentences, or life terms the Supreme Court, but they have to be appointed by the President, and then the Senate has to approve the appointment. So you get all this power if you're made a justice, but you have to be approved by the other two branches in order for that to happen. Uh, The President can also help to push for legislation, but ultimately it's the legislative branch that has to push to actually create the law and pass it. And Congress also has the power of the purse. They they are the ones responsible for funding these laws too. So that's another way that they can check the president in terms of what the president wants to do.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that is um, the system of checks and balances and and how that works. All right, so let's move on. Um, Was everybody on board with this new constitution that was being drawn up that gave the federal government greater power? Was everybody supportive of it?
1: So there were two camps, basically. Uh, you had one, which was the Federalists, which were uh, sort of in favor of the Constitution. They supported it. And you had the Anti-Federalists, which, which were against it. And so there was this huge debate going back and forth whether or not they should have a, uh, a strong central government. Um, and, and basically, people uh, had this debate back and forth um, in the press. So federalists supported the new constitution and a stronger federal government. Um, you know, merchants who sent ships to sea and people living on the frontier, uh, they kind of, you know, thought, you know, they need some, some form of protection and a strong federal government sort of provides that um, that fear to people that might harm them, right? If you're traveling, uh, you know, around the, the tip of South America or if you're traveling in Asia and you have that American flag flying, it sort of... Uh, you know, symbols uh, or, or, or threatens people and says, don't mess with me um, because they know that they would have to deal with the federal government. You have guys like uh, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and John Jay who wrote the Federalist Papers. Um, they, they did this all actually under uh, the uh, pseudonym Publius. Uh, so basically, they're writing all these essays uh, in support of the Constitution, which you can now find um, in any bookstore anywhere. Um, and so uh, these essays are basically just arguing that the Constitution, uh, you know, outlined a federal government that would uh, leave people and the states sort of to do what they want, and the federal government would only be there to sort of act like a parent or, you know, act like a referee at times. Uh, anti-federalists uh, were a little different. Um, they, they thought that, you know, the new Constitution would give too much power um, to the uh, the new federal government, and so uh, they were worried that the Constitution would basically allow the federal government to act like a king. You know, the president would possibly act like a king, and that was very concerning. So, guys like uh, Thomas Jefferson, Sam Adams, Patrick Henry, they argued against this. They said, "You know, we've we've just dealt with a king. We've just dealt with you know the abuse of our rights. We don't have time for this. We 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 really need to think of something different." And they said, we absolutely have to guarantee the rights of our citizens. You know, if we don't have the right to freedom of speech, if we don't have the right, uh, you know, to uh, write what we want in the press, um, if if those rights somehow, you know, get abused, then we could be in, you know, big, big trouble. Um, So they wanted some guarantees, uh, and it ends up becoming the Bill of Rights. So they feared that the government was going to become too large and too powerful Um, And that the concerns of the people in the states, uh, you know, might get sort of drowned out. Uh, What's actually kind of ironic about that is even though these guys sort of believed in, you know, uh, a smaller government with less power, Thomas Jefferson in 1803 purchases the Louisiana Purchase, which nowhere in the Constitution says that he's allowed to do that. But uh, he gets it done anyways because he sees it as such a great opportunity. Uh, so I kind of I, I find it really ironic that he says one thing, but then when he's in charge kind of does a different thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. and that was something I think that he struggled with because he had been so um, you know strongly in support of the idea that you had to follow the Constitution word for word and this strict interpretation of it. Um, and I think he struggled with, how to go about purchasing that, but it was such a good deal um, that Jefferson kind of bends his own views there a little bit. All right, so um, this Bill of Rights that we we mentioned, uh, what what does it include? What are what is that?
2: So the Bill of Rights are the first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution. So they're They're added on to the end of the Constitution. They're actually added on a couple years after the Constitution was ratified. Uh, James Madison, Federalist, he's the one who actually puts forth the amendments in the Bill of Rights. There's actually 19 of them, uh, 12 of which get approved by Congress and are sent to the states for voting. So the way it works is two-thirds of the Senate and two-thirds of the House have to approve an amendment. And then it goes to the states, and if three-quarters of the states support the amendment, then it gets passed into the Constitution. So, seven of these amendments did not make it through Congress, 12 of them do, they go to the states, and 10 of the 12 are ratified by the states. So, this includes things like the First Amendment with free speech, the right to practice your religion freely, press, the right to assemble and protest, and the right to petition your government. Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. Uh, the Third Amendment, which is not super uh, important necessarily in modern day, but it's the right to not have troops quartered in your home. This is a big deal during like the French and Indian War. Uh, Fourth Amendment is protection against illegal searches and seizures, so the police need a warrant or probable cause. The Fifth Amendment requires grand jury indictment, uh, protection against what's called jubber- double jeopardy, which is being charged twice for the same crime and it's also your self-incrimination right so you don't have to actually testify and due process is also part of the fifth amendment sorry if I'm running through this quickly we really could spend a whole podcast dedicated to the bill of rights in its own right Uh, sixth amendment you get to know your charges with a speedy trial and the right to cross examine the witnesses testifying against you seventh right to a jury if you desire eighth no cruel and unusual punishment Ninth is also kind of important because it says that just because we're listing individual rights on this list, that does not make it a finite list. Just because we've listed eight prior to this, that doesn't mean it ends there. You have more rights than what we've listed. And the Tenth Amendment is for the states, so the Ninth Amendment is more for the people. The Tenth Amendment says that you know things that are not outlined in the Constitution as federal authority, those rights are then given to the states. So that's where things like education would come in.
0: Yeah, exactly. So um, those 10 rights that make up the Bill of Rights, that was kind of put in to guarantee certain protections against the federal government to make sure that there were certain things that the federal government could not take or violate um, in regards to the people. And that helps to get a lot of these anti-federalists finally on board with this new constitution. Um, So when this new constitution is approved, we end up with some big names um, involved in this. Brendan, do you want to tell us a bit about some of the people involved, notable some notable figures we've talked about, um, where they found themselves once this constitution took effect?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, we obviously talked about, um, you know... Uh, George Washington in the past. He was the commander of the American forces uh, of the Continental Army. Uh, He was this revolutionary war hero. And kind of like, you know, John Wayne in a cowboy movie, he rides off into the sunset, and he's like, all right, guys, I helped you win the war. I I helped freed us from, you know, British tyranny. Uh, Peace out. And what happens is uh, he goes home back to Mount Vernon, his plantation, and he spends a couple of years there with Martha, and they kind of get to this point where they're like, oh, we need a leader. We need somebody to be the first executive uh, in charge of the uh, the, fir- the first president in charge of the executive branch. And they turn to George Washington. He's kind of the unanimous choice, like— uh, you know, some people floated ideas of John Adams maybe or some, some other people, but, but really uh, Washington was a unanimous choice. And so Washington goes and becomes the first president. And, and when he does that, he realizes that every single thing that he does is going to set a precedent or an example for every other president after him. So, you know, when he's sworn in, he's sworn in outside in front of the people. He puts his hand on the Bible and says, you know, so help me God. Uh, He uh, has people address him as Mr. President rather than like Your Excellency or something like that. Um, So he does all these things knowing that every single thing that he does is going to be scrutinized for hundreds of years. Like people are going to uh, look to him as an example. And so, uh, everywhere from his personal writings to his public statements, they were all extremely well crafted because he knew that they were going to be studied forever. You had Alexander Hamilton, who was his right hand man uh, during the uh, American Revolution, uh, and though, and though, I'll know. Bleh, and although, not American. Uh, he, you know, became the first uh, Treasury Secretary. He was really good with money. He had uh, a three-part financial plan uh, to basically get the United States to start saving money, to get the United States <clears throat> on a good financial track. Um, and it didn't end up lasting too long because uh, he was eventually uh, going to be killed by uh, Aaron Burr. Uh, John Jay, who was also a federal, uh, Federalist author, he was the first Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice. Uh, so um, there's a college in New York City called John Jay College, uh, which is named after him. Um, and he basically helped establish the norms uh, for the Supreme Court. You had Madison, who was the uh, designer of, of the Constitution, really, um, and the Bill of Rights. Uh, he was a congressman um, and eventually did become the fourth president of the United States. And I think he was the shortest president in history, too, at uh, five foot four. So. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, he would be the third president eventually, and he was uh, a Francophile, so he was uh, really into uh, French uh, culture and French people, and so he was the uh, minister to France uh, for a while there. Uh, He was actually the first president to have French fries uh, at the White House in like 1802, I think. Uh, And then finally, Roger Sherman, uh, who helped with the Great Compromise. He was a congressman from Connecticut. Uh, He became a senator later. Um, and, uh, didn't really go, uh, too far beyond that, but, uh, it's really interesting to see how these guys who all helped, uh, form our government, uh, really, you know, rose to, uh, great powers, uh, later on.
0: Yeah, very interesting for sure to talk about all these important figures and kind of the roles that they played in this new government under the constitution. So, with that, we've wrapped up our episode on the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution, the new American government following the uh, Revolution and Independence. And in our next episode, we are going to take a look at the early republic. We're going to take a look at the United States now under this new, stronger Constitution, and we're going to kind of see uh, you know, what, what comes of that, what happens with that. So for Brendan for Kevin and for myself. We hope that you'll join us next time on Sleeping Through Class. Take care.